Watch your thoughts. They become your words. Watch your words. They become your actions. Watch your actions. They become your habits. Watch your habits. They become your character. Watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Lao Tzu. Welcome back to Cinematics, everyone. I'm fucking Polly, And I'm Ryan. Signaling to you from our own little habs, it's been about a month since Canada declared a state of emergency and bestowed physical distancing upon us. Figured it would be a good time to talk about The Martian. A great way to start this off. I agree. And a great quote. Thank you. A great quote. Yeah, it was... Uh, I can't. I think it. I think the website's called Daily Stoic or something. They have like a bunch of different quotes like that from different philosophers and people of that nature throughout time. Thinkers and thunkers. Thinkers and thunkers, man. So let's go, Iron Man. It's taken over the popular belief. <laughs> popular belief. Popular culture. The fact that the fact that movies are now referencing the other movies because they've become so mainstream <laughs> is interesting. Yeah, and I mean, The Martian takes place in the year 2038, I think. Somewhere around there. Uh, you know what? I I meant to look up what the what the date was and I never did. Yeah, it's it's somewhere in the 2030s or 2040s, I believe, but I I think people will still be making those uh those references just because of how ingrained it's become in the culture. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's been ingrained in culture since what? The sixties. Yeah. Seventies. Yeah. Comic books have been around for longer. The, the superhero universe, like the Marvel universe, I think is, I don't have any numbers to support this. I'm just saying what I feel right now. But it seems to me that it is the longest-running single IP conglomerate that exists. Uh, I think I, don't, I think I, DC has been going longer. Okay, yeah. Fair. Marvel, Marvel. And I mean, got its the, start. arguably like Mickey Mouse, maybe. Um, there's some like really old Disney properties that are around, but as far as cohesive units i think dc and marvel have been around longer than most others oh yeah dc def definitely so, uh because i think soldiers in world war ii were reading dc comics which start with superman i believe geez, i'm sure there's there i'm sure go. there's a, so. a comic book phenom out there who will say well that's actually wrong sure probably right because i think even disney had comics just about everything had comics from 
what I can it, think of. Yeah. So yeah, the The Martian, directed by Ridley Scott, written by Drew Goddard, starring Matt Damon, Jeff Daniels, Jessica Chastain, Michael Pena, Donald Glover, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. Nailed it. And based on the New York Times best. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> And, ba- and based on the New York Times best-selling book, The Martian by Andy Weir. Did you say Kristen Wiig? I did not mention her. She's not a major role, but she's one of the top build because she's Kristen Wiig. Right. Yeah, that's fair. She's good in this one. Um, from what I understand, when she got cast for this movie, she's been trying to spread her wings, so to speak, as a as a person who acts and I person who <laughs> acts, I don't know what the, the right thing to call them is an, an actor, an actor, an actress, actress. you know, mm-hmm. everybody has their, their thing. So a person who acts, the Martian was released on October 2nd, 2015 with a budget of 108 million. And as of October 4th, 2015, the Martian brought in a weekend box office of, about 54 million, a little over 54 million, and quickly came to gross 630 million worldwide. Made back its budget, and then you know a couple dollars a couple, over. A couple Martians over. Ah, that was horrible. Uh, I'm, 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 it's a pity laugh. <laughs> giving you a pity laugh. Uh, <laughs> I remember when it came out. I I made a very, very concerted effort that I needed to see it in theaters. I mean, you know me. I'm a huge sci-fi guy as it is. It's like, it is what drives me as a filmmaker. Um, but this one, from the moment the trailer came out, from the moment it started getting marketed, people were saying that it was being lauded as one of the most scientifically accurate space fairing movies um so i had to see it i had to know i had to i had to witness this this thing that was apparently scientifically accurate this, because what was this it, phenomenon the, known as the martian yeah and i mean i, I you gotta take some liberties with movies oh, yeah. and you gotta take some liberties with books 100 percent. um you know i mean if i may for a moment um, the, the one thing that everybody agrees on as the worst part of the entire movie for scientific accuracy is the dust storm at the beginning. Okay. Um, and there are a few reasons for that. The first reason is that with, in a, a period of 5.5 earth years, which is, I think 3.8 Martian years. Um, a storm of approximately that variety comes up once and the storm that they depict in the movie, first of all, is 20 to 30 miles per hour faster wind speed than any recorded uh, dust storm that's ever been like seen on Mars. Um, so there's that. But the bigger problem is that the Martian atmosphere is 1% the density 
of the Earth's atmosphere. There's a quote from an article on the Business Insider written by Kelly Dixon, who uh, was talking about it, and she quotes a scientist named Jim Bell, who apparently works with NASA's Mars rovers, and his quote is, if standing on Mars, a 100 mile per hour wind would feel like someone was throwing a bag of feathers at you. Oh. Because the atmosphere is so lacking in particles mm. that even uh, according to, um, uh, there's a science, a channel called Science versus Cinema, and they do an episode, a channel on YouTube, they do an episode on the Martian, and in it, they talked to a bunch of different NASA scientists and um, they basically have said that you'd have to have like 10 times the wind speed in order to get the same effect so uh, that you would on Earth. Oh, so right. if you get a 30 mile an hour wind on mo- on Earth, you'd need like a three, was it? 10 times seems too much. Maybe it was five times. One of those two. It, it's a huge increase in uh in actual wind speed in order to notice it you wouldn't have objects flying around it wouldn't be tipping over the ship it wouldn't be doing any of the things that it does in the movie both andy weir the writer of the novel and also ridley scott have acknowledged that they are aware that they cheated because there needed to be a reason to start the movie and and i guess that was why I think of that because movies have to take liberties sometimes in order to tell a better story because at the end of the day we're just trying to tell a good story and if everything is 100% scientifically accurate it might not be the best story you could tell okay so I got a I got a question for you then um just based on what you know about space travel and Mars and and stuff like that say if you were to do a scientifically accurate uh, uh start to the Martian what do you think would be a way that would leave Mark Watney stranded on Mars without a big a big storm? Like what what other catastrophic event could you see happening? I mean, I'm no astrophysicist. I'm just a um, an enthusiast. But I mean, from a from a storytelling standpoint, if you wanted to make that situation a hundred percent accurate to science i think the easiest way to make it so that he would be abandoned would be you'd have to have him off somewhere like maybe he's gone off in a rover somewhere and they have completely lost contact with him they can't get a hold of him they can't the readings they get maybe say he's dead it it could be a very similar thing maybe he's fallen on something or whatever he's punctured himself it could be very similar but it but it would have to be an event caused not by a, the dust storm so maybe he went off but he, he wouldn't go off on a solo mission either so then he wouldn't be by himself and that's the thing is it's like if you're doing your job properly there should never be a situation that you get yourself into where you get left behind like that if if science is more or less accurate here, here here's an idea Let, let's just say he was, you know, let's let's throw it in there where he he is off by himself. Say he's in a in a rover or something. What if the uh, the power to the hab got cut or something, and they just had to they had to bail and they didn't have time. Yeah, I don't know, man. That, that's a tough, right? One. Like, like, I, like I, if that I, was I, a situation, I, they'd at least have like 
probably a few hours to survive anyways to get him to come back right yeah. so unless they lost all, all of these things are accounted yeah for. every contingency you know, the amount of time that nasa spends designing i've i've looked into how they put their their rovers together and how they put their space spaceships together and their their like their shuttle launches and all those kind of things and and like there is no stone unturned it's years of of planning and prepping and making everything as as low weight and as tightly compacted and as perfect and as foolproof and failproof as possible so that nothing goes wrong because once you're out there you can't there's nothing you can do like you're on your own you know um it's not like like the problem with the movie of like how long does it take them to get there right so even at the best of times it's a four four to eight month journey um which was true to what they were talking about in the movie um you know so there's and, and like there's there's protocols that I, I really don't think an astronaut would get in a rover by themselves and drive off somewhere and put themselves in a situation where everybody else would have to leave and he'd be by himself i mean there's there's maybe a situation where one of the two of them dies like he's out with one other person on a on a an expedition or on a an ex uh, uh doing something um or alternatively they have a breach in their hab maybe you know it's it's leaking air or they've got no pressure and they've they're on a time limit so these guys are like oh well we have a solution we'll go out here to do the thing and they lose contact with them for some reason and you know it's like do we wait for these two people to come back or do we go because we and you know if there's enough precedent to assume that they're dead and the other crew members are like well i mean we're gonna die if we stay waiting like they have to go eventually so i guess that would be that would be the only situation i could see where where you'd have something that would not be cheating truth i'm sure if i sat for hours and maybe prepped something i could come up with some solutions that might answer your question better but um I was I was more curious That's to see what you come up with off the top of your head because we've talked about space a few times and you're like oh yeah there's then there's like the thrusters and they have all these different ways of <laughs> launching things into space. <laughs> I'm uh, like, I get so excited about it, man. I just nerd out over like anything to do with space and spaceships, and it's just uh, I love it. I found this YouTube channel called uh, Half as Interesting. I'd never heard of them before. I just with quarantine and things i've been on this like educational youtube kick where i w i've been watching a lot of educational videos and things and this one is talking about the fastest self-propelled man-made object ever oh, and shit. i invite you to take a guess as to what it is fastest um like a like a railgun projectile just of any man-made object, the fastest self-propelled object that is man-made. Um, I, I don't know, man. I'm at a loss. A manhole cover. What? All right. So here's the story. It's a great story. You should, uh, the video is again, half is interesting. Really great stuff. I don't, I didn't like go do a whole bunch of double fact checking on it he seems to know what he's talking about so in 1957 the u.s well before 1957 as well but the event takes place in 1957 
the U.S. is testing nuclear bombs all over the place because it's the Cold War. And they realize, with the help of some external institutions, that just blowing up bombs on the surface is not necessarily the greatest way to handle things. And so they decide they're going to, that in order to, there's a, an agreement that's made, an actual agreement signed where uh, in order to test nuclear bombs, you cannot do it in like the air, on land, or in the ocean, or in space. So the only place that was legally, you were legally allowed to test bombs is underground. So oh, okay. what they did was they dug a giant hole, they dropped a nuclear bomb down into the bottom of it, put uh, two tons of concrete on top as like a concrete plug that weighed two tons and then plugged this hole into the depths with a manhole cover and they proceeded to explode this nuclear test bomb it instantaneously vaporized the concrete and turned it into a liquid and Holy launched shit. the manhole cover at 200,000 kilometers per hour which is six times the Earth's escape velocity straight up in the air. Holy fuck. And nobody ever found it. <laughs> there's, two, there's two schools of thought, two main ones. One school of thought is that it got vaporized in the atmosphere. The other school of thought is that 200,000 kilometers per second, it probably, it's, it's possible that it was going too fast to become vaporized and left earth orbit and just got launched into space at six times the escape velocity they had no idea what they were doing this was the first time they'd ever like tried test test fired a bomb like this um and yeah this manhole cover was apparently extremely heavy and then there was two tons of concrete that were immediately vaporized um there are apparently this now the video is from june of 2019 um, so I don't know, maybe that maybe the information's out of date, but as of June of 2019, there are only two objects that have achieved a speed faster than that. Both of them are satellites that used gravitational slingshot to achieve those speeds. They couldn't oh, okay. do it self-propelled. They had to use the gravitational slingshot. One slingshot around the sun is the Helios probe that orbits the sun and takes study readings on the sun and the other one was a probe that uh, a satellite probe that was going past jupiter and used jupiter as a as a slingshot so the fastest self-propelled man-made object is a manhole cover launched by a nuclear bomb right so i guess if if we're on this vein anyways before we start talking about like the actual movie I guess there's a couple of points I made when we talked about, you know, wanting to have a little bit of conversation about the science of things. Um, you know, so there's, there's only one other real major fail point for the science of the film. Um, and it's another one that's totally understandable. And uh, from a filmmaking, producing, directing, acting point of view, I don't know how I would have done it any other way. It would just be way too expensive and way too time-consuming and way too difficult. Um, gravity on Mars is only 38% of Earth's gravity. It's 3.711 meters per second per second, whereas Earth is 9.81 meters per second per second. Um, 
So you would be a lot lighter. Everything would be a lot lighter, one third lighter or two thirds lighter. So you would, you would see them, they wouldn't be moonwalking, but like they would be kind of close. You know, they would have quite bounding steps. They would have a very sort of weightless carry to them. Um, there is an interview with Ridley Scott where an astrophysicist asks him about that. Um, and he, he basically says, you know, we did the calculations with the spacesuits and everything else. And we decided that with all of that, it was going to be close enough that we could cheat it, essentially. He didn't say those words. That's what he meant. Um, because at the end of the day, we, have, we can't go film on Mars, you know. And the expense and the time and the effort and the difficulty of filming in a set that can imitate uh, you know, one third the Earth's gravity either is going to cause a lot of slowdown in production or it's going to cause a lot of problem with cast moving around and trying to figure all that out. There's just too many factors. And I, I don't see a way that would be feasible economically to do that. Um Oh yeah, because you, you'd have like you have rigs and stuff set up with actors on on cables or you know some kind of I don't know like a some kind of treadmill with yeah. cables or something like green that. Green screens like, be, out the wazoo, and then that'd probably. Be more green I mean, they screens, already do, yeah, and then just for a ton of editing. And we can imitate weightlessness in that exact way with cables, with green screens, with um, with all these like yep, um, with with big cranes that we can use to throw people around. Um, and all of that we're very good at. I say we as though I'm involved in it. I'm not at all. But like the industry is very good at <laughs> as as exactly, a human species, as a, as a business, as a as an art form. We are very good at imitating zero g. Or I mean, there's no such thing as zero g. But I guess what was what's the word I'm looking for? Negligent gravity, because um, zero g doesn't exist. But doing partial gravity like that would be too much work to make it feasible from a production standpoint. Right. It's been criticized by scientists who have specifically looked at the movie from the science aspect because it was marketed as being a scientifically accurate movie. Um, so there's a video, the science versus cinema I found it's about a half hour. Um, and it's this astrophysicist who talks about, he goes through all of the key factors in the movie, talks to people who know, or if he's the one who knows, he talks about it. He talks to NASA, he talks to all these people, and then he talks to the filmmakers to understand decisions and choices. Um, and other than the gravity and the dust storm, pretty much everything else is accurate. Yeah, the the way that water he he does the watering system for his his potatoes hundred percent woodwork with with the chemistry and the science that he explained to it. Uh, the bomb that they made with sugar and everything hundred percent wood woodwork. Um, the representation of the space travel from Earth to Mars um, is accurate the zero g or not zero g the artificial gravity system the spinning wheel that they set up is the right idea apparently the the writer andy calculated the 
circumference or not the circumference the diameter of the the like uh artificial gravity spinning wheel based on the height of one of the characters that you see when she's in a shot you he, he yeah yeah and he he calculated how big the ring would be and did the math to figure out whether they would actually have gravity and apparently like the gravity that they were would have been creating with that centrifugal force would be because that's what it is it's not gravity it's just centrifugal force holding you to the ground um it would be like 10 percent of earth's gravity or something ridiculous but but he was he he basically just said you know i mean it's gravity it's it's the right idea that's presented and the biggest problem is just keeping people from being weightless because if you're weightless in space for a long time you lose bone mass you lose muscle mass you lose you basically atrophy your whole body just atrophies if you're up there for too long um so all of that was super accurate which was which was cool um also interesting fun fact apparently nasa is currently working on a mars rover design that is supposed to be manned it's it's a concept for how uh manned driving on mars could be and the design for it is apparently very similar looking to the design for the rovers that they used in this movie uh the wheels the wheel system is different uh the one that nasa designing apparently has uh, six wheels that all turn independently, uh, so it can get like it can ascend a forty degree incline without like concern. Um, but yeah, it's the hermetically sealed, not hermetically sealed, but like the pressurized cabin and all the the shape of it, the the sort of I guess style. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Well, that just goes to show you that you um, know. Um, because they're they were even saying uh, when they were making the the spacesuits uh, for the Martian, they were saying like they went to NASA and they're like, "Hey, is this guy? Is this what you guys would do?" And they're like, "Well, we take so many ideas from movies, anyways, that you know it looks good to us," sort of thing. The the one thing I did find is that the the suits that they use wouldn't work on Mars because and I, I now i they didn't give a, a full reason um but be i based on what i already know um i would imagine that it's because of the atmosphere or lack thereof um the what i saw was that the um the like trimmed down sort of sleek movie suits that they wear would not work and that they would actually have to have like pressurized um bigger suits with full o2 tanks on them and things like they'd, they'd almost they would probably almost just be wearing yeah like space the, the big white the one that uh, uh sebastian shaw was wearing they called the uh the doughboy the doughboy suit because it was so big and puffy right yeah the, the the classic one that you see um people wear because it's got insulation that keeps you warm it's got protection from from depressurization from from lack of atmospheric pressure uh it's got uh very well sealed it's got protection against punctures uh that sort of thing so they would probably be wearing in real and life i'm pretty i'm pretty suits. sure in the book um, uh they wore the bigger suits on mars but 
how are you going to act in those things? Like that oh, would just be it'd the be so absolute to worst. To sp- it, it would. Moving around, you wouldn't be able to like interact with them. Yeah. It's another one of those things where I'm like, I, I'm going to forgive the science on that because from a movie standpoint, it's, a movie. it's like, yeah, we'll let, we'll let that slide. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I ain't no astrophysicist. This is all just like stuff I look up and stuff I'm independently interested in. So if, if somebody feels like they want to correct me, if I've misspoken, feel free to. Uh, I would love to learn new things. Um, but yeah, so there's that. And then um, interesting, like you can tell they did their homework, you know. A- uh, Andy Weir said he he crowdsourced. This is I put this in quotes because that was the word that was used. Uh, the science to the book. So he essentially wrote it and had a whole whack load of people going through it to make sure his science was right. Um, and then Ridley Scott apparently talked to NASA afterwards, uh, especially in relation to protocol with missions, with how mission control and launches work, how um, people interact in, in mission critical sort of scenarios. Um, and that was another thing is Chris Hadfield said that he believed like he recognized the characters in the movie as like astronauts he would work with like he um kudos to matt damon and the rest of the cast for nailing the personality of astronauts apparently because an astronaut said that that is their presentation of how astronauts are was just spot on so that was kind of cool um so those those were the those were the big things for science. Oh, I guess fun fact, Chris Hadfield also said the in order to have the same atmospheric pressure that is on the ground in Mars, you would have to be about a hundred what was it, a hundred thousand feet up in the air on Earth. People start wearing oxygen like masks at the top of Everest, which I think is like two thousand feet. Shit, I'm not 3,000 feet? Google, activate. 8,954 meters, which is almost okay. 30,000 feet. 29,029 feet. All right. So I was super duper way off, but that number makes way more sense. But either way, that's still one third of the altitude you'd have to get to before you would be at like ground zero uh, uh, air pressure on Shit. Mars. So there's yeah i and and i mean to be perfectly honest before i started looking into this i didn't realize it was that thin either so i was i was really intrigued by the concept of literally no atmosphere essentially that's super cool but yeah so that was like that was my rundown of what my research and personal knowledge as of now found from the movie again i'm not an expert but i have watched things that experts have said i'll put some links in the description and if you want to follow them and watch the videos that i was looking at or see the articles and things they will be posted down below i guess like one of the things for me is i was going to do this episode last year and this was when i didn't have a computer and Mm -hmm. i was on i was doing it solo because you were off in uh, bc i can't remember if it was just for a weekend or if that's when you first moved out there it was when I first moved out, I think, um, is when is when 
that happened. It was when I first officially made the move and we hadn't set things up to do it remotely right. like we do now. So, yet. you know, I was I was solo. I didn't have a computer. I still had my mic, but obviously I didn't have a computer and I couldn't use it. So I was trying to use my phone to record the thing. I did it like three or four times and I couldn't get it uploaded for whatever reason. And now about um, 354.26 souls later, <laughs> we're, uh, we're coming at it again. And I think it's at a pretty appropriate time because uh, um, just you know, kind of what people are dealing with. I feel like Mars or Earth is starting to look a little bit more like Mars nowadays. It just looks so, so desolate and mysterious. And, you know, it's kind of, kind of a strange thing. And a lot of people have been spending a lot of time on, you know, by themselves. And, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a good time to talk about, you know, uh, the importance of being okay in the presence of your own company, I suppose. I, I like that a lot. That's something that, to get real personal for a second here, that's something that I've always had a hard time with, you know, that, that took me a lot of learning is to just be okay with myself. Even even still, man, I don't, I don't know about you, but like, how often do you actually spend in silence? Quite often. Because I don't. If I'm at home and I'm not watching something mm. or playing a game... I'm listening to music or I'm listening to a podcast. The only time there isn't some kind of background noise that keeps me distracted from thinking about myself is when I'm having a shower, pretty much. Or when I force myself to have quiet moments. Or when I sleep. Showers are the best time to... to it's... it's uh, I find a lot of the time showers are where ideas just kind of hit you out of nowhere. Well... I mean, totally, because um, creativity, especially those blasts of creativity, often come when your brain is not thinking about things. Yeah. When you're not you're focused just... on something, you're letting your mind wander, and that's what you do in the shower. I mean, unless you're really focused on some problem or something. But... Like your, your, your tap is leaking, you're like, what do I have to do to fix this? I got to fix this problem, and then I got to solve another problem, and if I solve enough problems, then I'll get home. <laughs> or I'll have a not leaky faucet. <laughs> well, yeah. Quote. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, an appropriate time to come back to this. Come back to this one. It's kind of the uh, the Martian the Martian redemption on on uh, my side, just because for the life of me, I couldn't get the thing uploaded, and I still have a lot of the same talking points because this is. Um, mostly what I was going to talk about last time. And I'm, I looked for my notes and I couldn't find them. I just wrote them on this like realty notebook that you just find in your mail mailbox and everything. So I didn't even have oh, the okay. notes, but I, I remembered a lot of them. Mm -hmm. It's been one of those things where it's just kind of been in my head the whole time. So, um, well, and, and now, now that everybody is, as you said, spending so much time in isolation, you know, I mean, it's, it's not as harrowing as poor um, Mark's experience at least we can pick up the phone and phone somebody and have an instantaneous conversation uh, and not have to wait two to 12 to 24 minutes mm -hmm. yeah um, but you know well and you're, there's you're lessons to be learned oh yeah and you're not stuck just listening to the listening to disco music mm -hmm. and watching uh the six million or the 
the six million dollar man is that it steve austin it was what what the six what the hell was it the six million dollar man or the one million dollar man it's a thing about thing about the guy who's uh he gets he gets messed up in some kind of accident, and then they they're like, "We have the technology; we can rebuild him." Oh yeah, I didn't catch that though. I saw I saw the like Happy Days reference or the Happy Days like. Oh yeah, that uh, was from the was yeah that was from the book, the uh, Six Million Dollar Man. I think Happy oh, Days okay. was mentioned there too. Yeah, Six Million. It wasn't man. it wasn't mentioned. It was just playing in the background at one point. But. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Uh, I didn't read the book, so I don't. You know, you're that's your wheelhouse on this one. The thing I like about it is, for one, the way that they portrayed Mars in it. Like Mars wasn't this extremely hostile environment, like which it was, but they didn't play it like that. They they were saying that the what they wanted to go for was more the mystery and the majesty behind Mars and just, you know, the vastness of it and just the unknown. That's the freakiest part about Mars for Mark Watney is just anything could happen at any time. Well, I mean, you feel that when he's sitting on that cliff and talking about how he just goes outside every day to look at the view, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's beautiful. It's barren and it's unknown and it's mysterious and it's scary and it's, it's intimidating and it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, and at the same time, terrifying too, because mm-hmm. any one thing goes wrong. Well, and and that's it with space travel, right? It's like you know, all it takes is one problem. Yeah, the the other thing I want to mention too um, was the the score by Harry Gregson Williams. Man, mm. that like I I never listened to it before, and I started listening to it and. It's something I frequently play now just to kind of get myself going in the mornings or if I'm not feeling very productive, I'll throw that on. And then it's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my, th- I'm doing my thing now. Um, and like, if you, if you played like the song Mars from, from the score over any drone shot you see of earth nowadays, it would have a very similar feeling. It's really eerie <laughs> and weird. Uh, you know, it's funny. I have never listened to the score on its own, and I'm a big, a big fan of listening to to movie soundtracks. I mean, the adagio in D major, I believe, from mm. Sunshine is just ah. Uh, if I need something to kick me into gear, I'll just throw that on. It just it's powerful stuff, um, and that's that's interesting because I I recognize now looking back, having just watched it again this morning. Um, I didn't notice the soundtrack, but in a good way where it did exactly what it needed to do. It was powerful. It was strong in the right moments and, and soft in, in the right moments, but it never distracted you from what was going on. It just dragged you further into it. Yeah. There, uh, at the beginning during the storm, I really didn't even take any notice that there was music there until I listened to it on the score. And I was like, like I, it's still, yeah. When they're, when they're in the storm, uh, there is a song for like the emergency, the emergency departure from Mars. Um, Oh shit. Yeah. There is a song for that. (laughs) I never even took any notice of it. It fills in, in with the, with the soundscape very well. Oh yeah. I, I, it blew over me too. It doesn't uh, intrude on on the actual movie, 
and I don't think these songs do either, but the more prevalent songs are, you know, the David Bowie songs and the Elton John songs and the, the pop, the pop stuff. Of course. But, but they're diegetic, you know, they belong yeah. there. Yeah. Right there. And, and I'm going to be perfectly honest. I don't, I don't hate disco. I could listen to a song or two, but if all I had to listen to for like a year and a half or what was it? A year and a half, two years he was there. I would also go crazy. I do not blame him one bit for that. I would go crazy. Probably the only the only songs that I could listen to, I, I wouldn't even say on repeat, but the two that I can think of from that movie that I wouldn't have too much trouble listening to is uh, Hot Stuff by Donna Summer and uh, Starman by David Bowie. Those are, those are always good songs. Yeah, they are. I have but, a question, actually. Yo. I'm just thinking about that. So this movie is was made in 2015. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to take place. You said what in the 2030s? Probably? Yes, something like that. Yeah. Um, why the hell did they just not have a Spotify account with a bunch of downloaded music on the hard on the computer? Like they had computers. They had like little tablety things. They had. You know, and, and there's there's all of this thing about, like, weight, and you can only bring so much, and it's like, okay. So I totally get that, like, for the captain, or the commander, sorry, for the commander, I totally understand that she'd want to have, like, some really close-to-home sort of songs and things, but why would Mark not have brought, like, a list of downloaded Spotify music? Yeah, I was actually... Non-branded streaming service (laughs) yeah i was actually thinking the same thing i'm like well why didn't he just prepare himself a little bit better and bring some own entertainment because it even seems like in the book he had nothing for himself it was all everybody else's stuff that he was watching and reading and and all that so it's just like what did what was what was watney doing that whole time counterpoint maybe he was trying to feel less alone because if he just partook of whatever he brought it was just him with himself but by going into his crewmates music and into their like their computer files with their movies and that they have and like the things that they brought and left behind he is keeping them there with him to keep him company in the same way that every time he sits down to do his his video logs you know he could very easily just like point 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 for historical accuracy but he's talking to somebody he's he's taking it as though he's having a conversation or expecting that when people listen to it they're gonna he's speaking to an audience you know and i think in a lot of ways that was one of the things that kept him sane um it seemed to me you know when when things went wrong he went to the video log and what did he do he cracked a joke you know and it kept him it kept him sane yeah and and the other thing was too is he was he was able to have a laugh at himself once in a while like after he blew himself up and he just sits down in front of the cameras like just you could tell that he wanted to i blew myself up yeah like you could tell that he almost wanted to lose his mind but there's no there's no point in doing that you just make things worse so you just that's sit, sit down take a breath and you know so i blew myself up and then... that's that's something that I really appreciated about his character um, that made me really connect with him in this movie is that 
and it, it makes him very believable as an astronaut too is that like he's trained his entire life for this kind of scenario he goes through rigorous training programs he has a ton of academic study under his belt as as an astronaut you have to um so of course he wouldn't be getting in there panicking and losing his mind and and getting angry and you know he has those moments where he he starts to you know like after he loses all his potatoes and he gets in the gets in the rover and just start punching things yeah you know and it it there's there's so his performance in this you know i mean i'm not about to say that that he's the only person who could do it because that's that's not even close to true um he carries the movie and he's got to have the chops to do that and and they cast a really they made a really good choice in casting him here because i mean there was so many moments that were just so real you know so many ups and downs of of humor and of excitement and of hope and then of dashed hope and anger and frustration and and hopelessness but all of those moments were just internal and real and they weren't told to us it's it's the looks it's the it's the moments that he doesn't say something or that he turns away or that he makes an or like when when the door blows off when the hatch blows off and he makes that that makeshift cover and then he's counting his potatoes and there's a crazy storm outside and he's just trying to count his potatoes and the storm is freaking him out. I'm like, I've been there, man. I've been in a tent out in the middle. I mean, it's not that it's the same, but like I've been in a tent out in like bumfuck nowhere, southern Alberta. Well, not not actually. It was in Dinosaur Provincial Park, which is quite famous. Well, still, there's um, there's rattlesnakes but, out there, isn't there? Yeah. And well, it's, and it's enough I, like I a desert I have never planet. experienced a bigger thunderstorm in my life. I woke up at two in the morning to the roof of my tent hitting me in the face. It was so windy. My tent was literally lying flat on the ground, but it hadn't fallen over. It was just the wind was pushing it flat. It was so windy and it was lightning and I've never seen so much rain. And I just, I was sitting there. I'm like, I need to go back to bed. And I'm not a person who's generally afraid of storms. I love storms, but like, I felt that same sort of sensation that I connected with in that moment when he was trying to just trying to do what he had to do and not freak out. You know, it was just his performance was so real. That yeah, just hoping the the plastic doesn't rip off and just well, cause s- suck him out of the hole. Die. I mean, I don't think the the vacuum seal would be like it or wouldn't suck him right out. Explo- probably. Explosive decompression. Where his head wouldn't blow up, but he'd probably suffer a bunch of hemorrhages and yeah, things I in his brain. I wonder about that, because I'm curious how he secured that that plastic. Well, in, in, it the, must be... in the book, he was saying duct tape fixes everything. I mean, obviously, it fixed a leak <laughs> in his helmet, so... Yeah. You know what? I would swear by duct tape for literally anything. The only thing I'd take over duct tape is Gorilla Tape, so... Oh, yeah some kind of what about gaffer tape uh you know what gaffer tape's good in like film work but in real life i'd never use it i'd rather have duct tape or or i mean it's basically duct tape anyways but i'd rather just have duct tape or gorilla tape responding 
to a problem and not not reacting to it because reaction Ooh. is ne- never good. Always think about the problem and respond to it because there's one thing I've learned is it's not the it's not the problem it's you know your your own mindset on the problem and how you approach it and respond to it because there's been times where things have gone wrong for me and I've lost my shit and then I'm just like I'm like oh man that was stupid at risk of sounding like someone who has no idea how the real world works because <laughs> I do um there is a great example in video games for me of exactly that point there's this boss fight in Dark Souls, the original Dark Souls, um, that I, I, and I mean, it's, it's a difficult game when you're starting out and you don't know how to play it and you, you haven't learned anything. And, you know, I've played through a few times and learned some things, but the first time I fought this, this particular boss, I, I was at it for an hour and a half straight on the same boss. Just go in, fight, die, do the run, get back, fight, die. And by the time it hit an hour and a half, I had to, to tell myself, I had to, I had to stop myself. I was like, all you're doing at this point is reacting to what's <laughs> going on. You're not yeah. thinking, you're not being careful, you're just getting frustrated, and you're just doing stuff. I, I stepped back for like a day or two, and I came back, and like second try, I beat him. Oh, I know. Yeah, like you know, sometimes that's all it takes is just to walk away from something and just come back to it. A little bit later with like you know just a more a more level head man like well and when 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 you're in a situation like that where where every piece of the world around you is death you know you are in a bubble and that bubble is the of fabric and and canvas and little metal like posts and things like there there's a little bubble between you and death at all times and if anything happens to poke that bubble you're dead and nobody nobody can help you nobody can do anything for you except yourself and if you get worked up or angry or you rush things or you react to things without thinking about it and you don't prepare and be proactive you will die come up with a solution approach it calmly reason will win the day yeah keep keep a level head because the other thing is too um you know if say say mark watney comes back in he he heals him like he he fixes himself up after getting that antenna through him and everything and then he just started losing his mind and he curled up into a ball and he was you know just freaking out first off he would have never gotten contact with nasa otherwise and two even if he did I don't think NASA would have been able to help him anyways because he would have just been a wreck. Yeah. And you I know? mean, that's that there's, there's, you know, he, there's another side to that too, uh, which is that he gave himself time to mourn, I guess there's, mm-hmm. there's a podcast I listen to called, uh, I should be writing. And it's this, it's hosted by this sci-fi writer who she's basically just, she, interviews writers she goes to different cons like writing cons around the world and things like that and just produces a podcast on writing and she put out an episode recently called called morning where she talks about how with covid and with with isolation and with the way things are and stress and all that you 
you have to allow yourself time to mourn. You 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 can't do your do things properly if your brain is not there. If you're just in the middle of anxiety and stress and and frustration and whatever else you might be in the middle of emotionally and you're just trying to get yourself into it, you're not going to do a good job. He in terms of the Martian, you know, Mark Watney, um he gets back, he deals with a pressing problem of, you know, having a freaking antenna stabbed through his gut. And then once he knows he's not going to die from this thing, he literally does nothing for an entire day. He spends the rest of the night and a bunch of the next morning just sitting, he sleeps, he, he allows himself time to feel bad for his situation and then he says, literally quoted, I'm not going to die here. And that's the beginning of him accepting that he's had his time to mourn and now he just has to act. Yeah. Well, um, and, the, and the thing is, too, when he says that, you believe him. He's like, I'm not yeah. I'm not going to die here. And yeah, you're right. It, it is uh, and it, it is an adjustment period. You need to give yourself time to process and, you know, really really think the situation through and also not get too stuck in, you know, in, um, you know, the past about shit and in the future about shit, because you just cause yourself too much anxiety. Like expect the best prepare for the worst sort of thing. Always. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I've, I've talked to some people and they're, you know, they're really worried and everything. And I'm the, the only thing I know how to do is like, I'm like, you know, things could go either way right now. Like you can, you know, feel a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen rather than just trying to keep yourself as grounded as possible. Like, yeah, you want to prepare for the worst case scenario, but giving yourself anxiety about it, it's only going to make it worse. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and I, and there's, there's situations like in, in, in the context of the movie and the character, you know, he's got a, there's a certain point where, you know, you can't sit and wallow in self pity. You have to allow yourself a moment to, collect but you also have to realize that you have to keep going and that you can't just wallow forever you know um i mean in this is a very this seems to be a very sort of i this is an interesting conversation we're having about the movie in relation to life and and, and not in a bad way i, I appreciate it so I, I would offer another personal adage maybe it's not an adage um but I mean, with the isolation that I've ha have been in because of COVID, you know, I'm I'm in one of the Vancouver is one of the more affect affected cities in Canada. Um, for obvious reasons, we have one of the only uh, major international airports west of Calgary. Um, we have uh, a lot of uh, like a very high Asian population. Um, we have a very high multicultural population in general. We're a very diverse city. Um, so, there's, so there's a lot of travel all the time. And we're also the gateway to Canada. People coming from all kinds of places. You know, if you're coming in to the country from the west side, it's very likely you'll at least stop through Vancouver at some point on your trip. Um, you know, so we've had a lot of impacts. And so for me, especially, I've been very cautious i don't really leave the house very much um and it, it's tough 
because everybody I know is most of the people I know are not here. My my girlfriend is is back in in Calgary. My family is all back in Calgary. Most of my friends are all back in Calgary. Um, and and it's 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 interesting to um, I, I I have found that it takes an extraordinary amount of motivation and drive to push myself to do things that are productive uh, with this time. It's it's so easy when you're stuck by yourself and when you're in a, a situation that is stressful. It's so easy to fall into things that just make you feel good. Um, and for me, unfortunately, that is playing video games. And, and I have spent way more time allowing myself to quote-unquote wallow by playing games than I would have liked. I have a lot of projects I've wanted to be working on, um, uh, various scripts and and prose pieces I'm trying to write and videos on YouTube I wanted to, series on YouTube I wanted to try making and things like that, and I just haven't really done any of it for the last two weeks. Um, you know, and, and trying not to be hard on yourself because the the big push of everybody should use this time as best you can to be productive and stuff that's good to a point um, it's good to a point but you have to take care of yourself too and and that, that was just I guess an interesting it was an aside from what you were saying it felt like it seemed to to connect with what you were saying somehow I guess yeah yeah hundred percent um, yeah I've I've been through that myself uh, like, uh, you know, last, last year was kind of the time that I took, I'm like, you know, when I, when we weren't really doing the podcast for all that time and I, I really took that time to reflect and change. I, I think it really comes with changing your mindsets because right now, like, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm in my element, like, cause I spent a lot of time and I had to make a lot of sacrifices to kind of it's, it's really about like um, changing, changing the little voice in your head. Like it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. Cause you might say like, you know, for example, like, Oh, I, I suck at this thing or I'm this or I'm that. And it could be like negative, And then you slowly just kind of plant, plant little potatoes in your head that grow <laughs> um uh into something that's you know can uh sustain you over time uh little little seeds i guess where you keep repeat even even if they come like even if they're unnatural like you kind of you keep saying these things like you know i might say like oh i'm kind of a shitty writer or like whatever right but then you kind of just flip it and then you slowly start kind of um, turn, turning it around, I guess. So, um, that, that's just my experience with it. Like right now I'm kind of in my element, like, uh, you know, I've been taking the time to learn new things. I got back into video editing. I've been consistently writing and stuff, and it's just about forming the foundations and, um, your, like your habits, right? Your habits become your character. So, as, uh, as was in the beginning with that great quote you found us. 
Yeah, ha- habits uh, habits are, are certainly a thing. I mean, it's something that I've been trying to do, especially with this time now of trying to create mm-hmm. habits, daily habits that are healthy and good for me that I have not done in the past. And they're hard to they're hard to form and they're hard to break old ones. Um, but but unlike the Martian, we're also not in a life or death situation for a lot of people when it comes to how you spend your time in isolation. So I think that's something for me that I found really, really interesting to grapple with is that the creator in me is constantly needing to be working on things. I always need to be making something or trying to push to grow my career or the company or whatever else um, because that's how this business is run regardless of what part of it you work in it's it's the people who who put in the most time and effort usually are the ones who who see the most rewards unless nepotism takes hold somehow but uh, and that happens um, but but there's that part of my brain and there's the part of my brain that also says you know you you have to take care of yourself because you need to play the long game and if you run yourself into the ground too early especially in a situation like this where there's a sickness going around you make yourself more susceptible to it you know the life or death of things in terms of how it applies to spending your day productively uh allows for more wiggle room for us to to do well i i think i see what you're what you're meaning to say there and and i only say that because well a i'm trying to make myself feel better <laughs> but also there there's a lot of people out there that i think have take i've seen some things online there's there's people out there who have been taking this uh, big creator push of people online and Twitter and Instagram really pushing the be creative and do all the things and make the most of it. It's like, you know, there, there are a lot of people out there who this is not an increase in free time. This is parents who are cooking more, who have their kids home, who have still possibly a job to work from home. I'll, there's a yeah. lot of people who have more to do now. There, there and, are people out there with different circumstances, for sure. And, and I, I think it's just important to, to remember that if it's something that you want to do, you should do it. But in a situation like this, if it's not something you want and it's going to add too much stress to your life and it's going to add too much, like... Um, too That's much complication, yeah. you, should, you mm-hmm. should take care of yourself first and and use your time as best you can around making sure you're taking care of yourself because i i'm no good at that i i sacrifice my well-being all the time in favor of trying to get videos out for whatever or trying to write or trying to finish the website or whatever it is you know and uh it's a lesson that i've had to struggle with a lot uh, and yeah. s- still have not really figured out how to balance life and work and friends and family and whatever else. I um, here, here's here's my my thing on it is I don't think there is a balance. I think there's <laughs> some things honestly like I think there's some things you have to put before other things. That's what I've kind of uh, come to learn for for me anyways. I can only speak off my personal experience. So there's 
you know, to, in order to get forward with my, my writing and kind of build new habits doing that and stuff. It's, uh, there's other things you kind of, you kind of have to sacrifice and it, it really just depends on what's important to you and what your situation is. Well, and I guess uh, that's, more than that's kind of what I, what I, I, I mean to try and say is that I think there's a tier of priority where there's only so much time in your life and in a day and in a week and, and something that I've learned of being a bit of a generalist, I, I've dabbled in, you know, I mean, I had my, my video game playthrough channel that I did forever because I thought maybe I might something might come of that. And if I put my cards in every single court, maybe something will, will take off. And, mm. and I'm starting to realize that um, it doesn't work that way and that you have to, you essentially have to pick the short list of what you want to prioritize in your life the most and mm. what is most important mm -hmm. to you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, far be it from me to tell anybody what is going to be the best for them other than I know that I am trying especially hard mm -hmm. these days to prioritize myself and my well-being and getting good, healthy life habits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. As well as the priority on my writing and on film and on creating story content um and it, and just figuring out what's the most important and understanding that like you know if if writing is what you want to do then you have to write and you have to prioritize it and you have to recognize that it's a job and that even if it's there's even if it's days like that you might not want to do it and there's times yeah. you might not want to do it but you've got to force through because mm -hmm. you know it's yeah, not 100%. it's weird to say it but it's not fun like it's fun i love it, it but can, the process of writing <laughs> is yeah. as much not fun if not more not fun sometimes than fun mm -hmm. yeah but it's it's the desire for whatever the desire is that drives you to do it that makes you want to tell the story that makes it worth it in the end yeah build up build up those foundations man and i guess uh with all that being said we're all gonna have to science the shit out of this huh? in our in our own way you know <laughs> i love that man i i loved <laughs> we got way off way <laughs> off the movie but i think I, I think deep down part of me feels like you were planning this the whole time and that this was never really a mo uh, an episode about the martian it was always about this other stuff that's what I, that's my theory but yeah but, yeah to a point yeah but uh, but there was there was a, to take it back to the movie for a minute to sciencing the shit out of it i did i i loved his dialogue i loved his jokes i loved the the, <laughs> yeah. the quick witty snappy comedy that was just so well timed and so well performed and presented and 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 space pirate makes me so goddamn happy <laughs> Ugh so happy <laughs> uh yeah i think i think my favorite line is after he blew himself up and he's like i wasn't counting the extra uh carbon dioxide that i was breathing out because um, i'm an idiot yeah because i'm stupid or because i'm stupid yeah <laughs> that that was that was interesting though because at that point that was actually when i wrote down in my notes uh where is it here i find he goes through ups and downs like a real person would yeah he has I see in the things that he does the arcs and patterns of real people and how mm -hmm. real people deal with situations, you know? And, like, mm -hmm. 
I do that all the time. I'll like, I'll make a mistake and I'll like, well, this is what I did because I'm a fucking idiot or I'm stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. And then you just sit back and you're like, okay, that was, I'm frustrated with myself, but it's fine. I'm going to move on from it and I'm going to stop my ears from ringing and then I'm going to get back to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing too is, you know, he, he's multifaceted, but he's not necessarily good at everything. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a biologist, so he's good at biology and then he has the basic training for how to survive in space. That's the thing, yeah. right? And that that's what one that was what Chris Hatfield. Oh no, I think it was Chris Hatfield. Yeah, yeah, that's what Chris Hatfield was saying, and and this other science versus cinema video as well about the academia behind the characters in this movie because astronauts are very academic people. I mean, first of all, they have a specific field that brings them takes them to space. They they're not just astronauts you know they're astronauts after becoming something else because they want to go to space to do the thing you know like an astrobiologist or an astrophysicist or an astro whatever um you know they have an entire tier of education in a specialization and then they still have to learn the basics of everything else of of the the g's of the 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 basic engineering of how the the equipment works how the the ship functions you know you gotta you gotta be able to in a pinch do what needs to be done and have the knowledge to keep yourself alive now i mean we're not at a point in space travel yet where um it's quite as in depth as what science fiction and even these, um, this movie will tell you. You know, I mean, we haven't sent people outside of just or orbits. Or wow, that was a bad sentence. We haven't sent anybody further than just into orbit. You know, we put people in satellites around the Earth, um, and we've realized how big of a hurdle going into space is on how hard it is on our bodies, how difficult it it is for the time it takes that all this there's so many complications to it um and and this is why nasa spends years designing everything to be foolproof because you can give everybody a basic training but and and they do like rigorous psychological exams to make sure that they're the kind of person who can respond appropriately under stress and work with teams well and apparently they also are paired up in groups for the people who are work best together specifically like catered to personalities and and how they've worked together in the past to make sure that whenever a team goes up they are the most compatible and the most comfortable and competent that they can be with the most compact and pre-prepared gear that they can be so that they don't have to have the problems but there's still going to be problems, you know? I mean, we've only we've only had two nuclear reactor meltdowns in human history, but there's still been two nuclear reactor melt rea- nuclear reactor meltdowns in human history, you know? We almost lost an entire continent because of one, and um we put a ton of radiation into the Pacific Ocean because of the other. So even with the most prepared we can be, there's still going to be things go wrong. The one thing I liked about uh, the book more compared to the movie was 
obviously because it's a movie and there's only so much you can show in a movie, but the book had a better passing of passing of time and how monotonous the, the, the job could be on uh, Mark Watney while he was up there and all the things. Cause it, it seemed to, to a point in the movie, like he had a couple major setbacks, like his crop getting destroyed and all that. But um, it seemed like he kind of, you know, I wouldn't say breeze through it, but I, I think in the movie it's portrayed as being a lot easier than it actually would have been in real life. They skipped a lot of time, you know, they show you the important bits. They show you the bits that create tension and progress the plot and build on the story. Um, and they skip the bits where he has to handle living day in and day out, eating mm -hmm. almost no food and having nothing to do but take yeah. care of plants and clean stuff. Like I think, I think in the book when he was when he was drilling all the holes through the the other rover that he had when he was drilling all the holes through the roof, mm -hmm. um, it took him. I think in in the book it took him like a month just to drill the holes. A month. Yeah, just because the the power of the drill and the material it was made out of, and the oh. fact that he had to uh, plug it in, he had to wire it directly to the hab, to the charger that charges the rovers. So he had all these all these different things and then he had to he had to uh break off all the pieces that were in between each hole too so he had to chisel all those out and he only had like a certain amount of tools to use because they weren't really expecting to have to cut up a rover and everything and i mean those rovers are designed to take a beating exactly and they're spoiler alert but there was um well it's not really a spoiler but there's you know he it became so monotonous for him. He was drilling holes for like 28 days or something like that. And just from one little mistake that he made was he leaned the drill up against a table and it caused a short to go through the charger and into, into Pathfinder. So in the, in the book, I haven't really made it too far past this part, but he, uh, he fries Pathfinder cause he creates a short in the drill and then it goes up to Pathfinder and then he loses communication with her. That's interesting. And that's something you wouldn't really think about, you know? Like, when I really started for one of my projects, when I really started looking into, like, space travel and, and the feasibility of, of and the technology required and things, there's, like, there's an entire design that is meant to discharge static electricity off of spaceships, Um which is not something you'd think you'd have to worry about, but flying through space, there's a lot of electromagnetic radiation, there's magnetic fields, there's, there's radiation of all kinds, you're flying in a metal box, and if something shorts, you could you know, blow this pressurized tin can and everybody would just explode into space. Um, so they have these, these designs for these exterior... I'm... I wish I had the science in front of me for it, but they're essentially conductors that are designed to dispel static electricity away from the interior electrical components and discharge it across the surface of, of ships. Oh, okay, um, I gotcha. Yeah. But, of course, that can cause problems if you have to do a, an EVA and, and get out there. You have to shut that down because otherwise a person could get electrocuted to death by the charge that's being carried in the the casing of the of the vessel you know but if you're doing 28 holes or 28 days of hole drilling at some point your brain's probably going to go on autopilot 
And the next thing you know, that's that's cool. That's that's interesting. Having not read the book, that like, there there seems to be a lot of real moments that would never ever translate into a movie. There's no way you could do that in a movie properly. Well, you could. Yeah, I I think you could, but it would just it would be a really long movie, and nobody wants to sit through like unless it's Lord of the Rings for some reason, but nobody wants to sit through like a three and a half hour movie. I mean, I will sit through a three and a half hour movie if it's justified being three and a half hours. But in my mind, especially with the way movies are and the way I've always been taught about film is that you need to every scene. And if you really get down to it, every action and every piece of dialogue needs to either progress the plot impact or progress or affect the story in some way or provide some form of character development or expression or present to the audience something that's important for them to know and if there's any information in there that is not doing a very important and specific role you should take it out and and that's because people go to movies not to have to sit for a long period of time and watch a guy drill holes for 28 days and then almost lose or and then lose his pathfinder because he wasn't thinking you know like that's not the kind of thing that gives tension in a film it's not the kind of thing that uh people are going to be willing to sit through here Uh, here's how here's how i would do it though is i'm ready i would have i would have a, a maybe a montage of him doing a bunch of different things and kind of keep kind of keep the hole drilling as one of the I guess focuses of the montage and then have it towards the end where he leans the drill on this table. And then you can see that uh, pathfinder wasn't working after that. I, I like that. I mean, that's probably the best way to handle that, but I also really hate montages. Oh, they, and see, I they, love them. <laughs> they have, they have a purpose. They have a point, And when used properly in the right scenarios with the appropriate construction, they are extremely effective so often they don't get used properly Um, oh yeah i'm not i'm not saying that you wouldn't have to do it right but i'm i'm saying like you know if you wanted to include a little bit more because i i feel like he just kind of coasted through it a little too easily at times just to have you know like for example instead of uh you know when he's you could switch a few things i guess like instead of him having the montage when he's uh ripping apart the um uh, that that capsule that he's using to shoot himself up into into orbit, so um, Ares the Ares can or um, not Ares um, Hermes can catch him. Yeah. Um, you could possibly kind of mix those two together a little bit. I don't know. I'm just saying, like you'd I, have to restructure the whole thing. Sure. To I, a certain point, but yeah. And I'm I'm not saying I would I'm not saying that I I think you would express that it should just be thrown in there because of of course you you mean that it should be done properly um i guess the reason i say that is because in my mind the way the film is paced is is really good in terms of in terms of structure of of tension and progression and um i think in my mind while montages are a very effective form of of telling or presenting, not necessarily telling, showing or presenting a, a, a good amount of information quickly, 
I feel like it would have felt out of place here only because the rest of the movie is not montage Like, and it's, it's weird. I, I say that hesitantly because it is in a way because it's, it's snapshots of his life, but it's not montage snapshots in the way that you think of montage and in the way that montage was originally created by the Soviet filmmakers of the early 1900s, where it's, it's, short fast shots cutting between different things to establish correlation but rather it's scenes that are short but also full and have all the action unfold with some time jumps to present to you a fairly generally complete picture of his life is insofar as it is the most difficult parts and the most exciting parts and the most happy moments um, in their entirety without presenting a lot of montage quick jump around what you would think of as a montage. Um, but what you just said about intercutting it with constructing the the pod and things that's interesting too because at that point that would be where it would fit you know well when here's here's the other part too sorry to cut you off but this is just something this is just something from the book that i i feel like you probably could cut from the movie because it doesn't really serve any purpose and kind of comes out of nowhere and that was the relationship between or the romance between uh johansson and beck because by the end of the movie, like they don't have a whole lot of screen time, and then all of a sudden they're like falling for each other. And I even remember being in the theater, kind of being like, "Okay, like this kind of seems a little pointless." I'm I'm not gonna lie, until she kissed his helmet at the end, I had absolutely no idea that they were trying to go for that. I didn't I didn't get that at all. You you don't see enough of them, at all. Other than the commander. I, f- I feel like we know the commander really well and we know Martinez because they have interaction in the beginning with Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg. Wow. I, Matt Damon. I mix the two of them up sometimes, which doesn't make any sense and there's no reason for it, but I do it anyways sometimes. Um, it's also because his name is Mark Watney, Matt Damon, Mark Watney, Mark Wahlberg. Anyways. So like, they have their conversation, and of the astronauts, I think those are the three that we know best. And and that's okay. And it's okay to have the other people there. But yeah, I didn't have any sense that there was a relationship going on there or anything kind of budding. And then she kissed his helmet, and then she said, don't tell anyone. And I was like, wait, did I just completely not see that? Yeah, because in a book, you kind of you get some little hints here and there. I still think in the book, it kind of comes out of nowhere. I don't know why for me it just does, but um, okay. Yeah, I've that that's probably a part that could be cut from the movie because I, I it it would just add more more tension if you saw that Watney had lost contact with Earth like that's his only lifeline. So what what does he do then, right? Yeah, so, I don't know. You'd probably have to place it in a different part of the movie, and you probably have to switch things around, which could potentially ruin the whole flow of the movie. But seeing something like that would have just been you know, could have made things a little more interesting because to me, he just kind of coasted through it. So ensemble casts are difficult. 
um, because you have to have enough time to get to know everybody. And most of the time with movies that do ensemble casts, you don't have time. So people will say, oh, it's an ensemble cast type show or movie because you have this group of people who are equal as far as their role in the progression of the plot. But there's always one or two people who are the main characters. I mean, if you look at Firefly, for example, you know, the crew of of Firefly, the, oh God, how many of them are there? Five, six, um, one of my favorite shows, and I can't even remember how many people there are. There's, there's five or six of them, and then there's two, I would, I would argue three of the characters are really pivotal, main, important characters that you get to know. And the rest of them, especially in movie format with this, like, we could have had the rest of the crew be, they didn't need to be cardboard cutouts, you know, the, the actors will bring to, they, it's a great cast in this movie. Everybody in this, in this, all the cast are just phenomenal. And they would have brought all of their own stuff to their characters. But don't waste screen time on things that are not important exactly. to the plot. And in this situation, the important people to spend screen time on are Mark Watney, uh, the commander, and Martinez. Those are the three that have the most emotional weight they carry the audience's tension. They carry the audience's expectations. And they are our window into what's happening. The other characters yeah. are important to the plot and less important to the story. And you're right to say that I think that the extra there's extra fluff that could have been probably trimmed out in favor of more useful storytelling moments. Because the majority of the book, too, spends, like, I'd say probably, like, 80% of the book, anyways, spends its time with Mark Mark Watney doing his, his journal entries and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's only, like, little breaks here and there in the book when it's revolving around... Uh, uh, Vincent Kapoor and Teddy Sanders, yeah. So played by Jeff Daniels, and I, I really, I really liked those characters, um, and I really liked that we got to see that other side. It, it added a lot of tension to what was going on, and I think all that the it's bureaucratic really, bullshit, yeah, exactly. That all of those moments. I, I mean, I wish Sean Bean had had a better, had a more prominent role, but that's just because I love Sean Bean, and I will be forever loyal to you, Boromir. Slash Ned Stark slash, um, like everything ever. And he didn't die in this movie. There you go. One of like maybe yeah. three movies he doesn't die in. <laughs> exactly. Um, for sure, one more he doesn't. Everyone says like the Martian is like cast away in space, mm -hmm. which kind of. But uh, in Castaway, I feel like there was more of a psychological um, effect that it had on. Tom Hanks's character in that movie as opposed to Mark Watney where you know even even though even though by the time you see him like what was it like s 7 months later or something or the, something crazy yeah, like that the 7 month later title card where he's got the the big uh, what was it Captain Goldbeard 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you can tell, like it's starting to have an effect on him. Like he's starting to lose his marbles a little bit and he almost forgets his helmet when he walks out of the airlock and everything. <laughs> oh, I love like, that. Yeah, space pirate. I <laughs> so, love that so much. Um, I, I don't know what it's like in the book form, but from what I have read of the book so far, you can see that it has, you know, just the boredom and the monotony of all the, all the tasks that he's doing. And he does have his ups and downs, right? But you can just, you can see, you can, you can tell over time it's starting to wear on him more and more. And he starts yeah. to kind of, he's, he's had enough of Mars. Well, that, that, that's, that's the beauty of, of different types of mediums, you know, I mean, film is really good for eliciting really powerful tension and cathartic responses through direct connection because we as a species can connect with anything as if it has a face and a name we will what well what was it from the guys like oh see this pencil oh community it's from the community uh uh jeff jeff winger has this big speech where he, he talks about how people can can literally can empathize with anything and then he gives a pencil a name and then snaps the pencil and everyone goes oh um you know and and it's a hyperbole but it's true i mean we look at a cat and i mean this thing is literally like it's a creature that is designed for nothing but to hunt and kill and somehow we find it adorable and relatable and have put it in our houses and domesticated it you know like we are a strange thing that wants to empathize with everything around us well, even when you say that, it kind of reminds me of when he leaves the the note in the rover when he when he's about to depart from Mars. He's like, take care. Like, he, he's like, to whom it may concern, please take care of this rover. She saved my life. So it's kind of like even even like Wilson in Castaway. He has this this volleyball with sticks in it and a bloody handprint face. Yeah. And you assume this thing as Wilson, like it's got a name, it's got a face, it's even got some, you know, got some hair, I guess. Like, yeah, you know, so you've got these physical representations of things that we can empathize with and connect to. And it gives us these strong, cathartic sort of experiences over short term periods in the same way that people would have gone to the theater for in Shakespeare's time or in the Greek in the Greek time. You know, they go for catharsis for that short term strong emotional roller coaster that leaves you feeling better for having experienced it and that's that that and sometimes worse and that's that's the great power of that visual medium but prose as someone who who has written uh, a crappy in incomplete but at least first drafted novel and like short stories and things it's 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 an entirely different beast and it's catered to an entirely different, not, not a different audience, but a different place in Dif people's lives. Yeah. A different form. Takes on yeah. Mo different movies form. are, are as much as I hate to say it, they're often more quick consumption. You sit down oh, for yeah. an hour to two and a half or three and a half, or in the case of the return of the King extended edition, five hours and <laughs> you watch something and then you walk away from it and you can get so many amazing things out of it and have such a long-term relationship with that property. But nothing quite, it, it can't do the same thing as sitting, reading, and seeing in your head this 
story mm-hmm. unfold over weeks and and or months or whatever, depending on how fast you read, um, you know, you have an entirely different connection. And and so that's one of the that's one of the things where people people go on about like, oh, the book was way better. Why why blah this and that. And I'm like, sure, but you should be looking at it differently. You shouldn't be going into the movie Dune, for example, because uh, I really want Denis Villeneuve's Dune to come out already. Um, you can't go into the movie Dune and watch it and hold it to the same standard as you would hold the the novel while you're sitting on a couch in a library or lying in bed reading it, you know? In the same way that you can't sit down to watch... I don't know what was what was the book adaptation that people really got mad about. I haven't watched Harry, it, but like Harry the Golden Potter? Compass or or Harry Potter or or any of those stories that when there's such a powerful connection to the the written word, the novel or the or the short story or whatever the the base text is, you know, there's this connection and people want the movie to be exactly what the book is. Exactly. Or even how they envision it, right? Because there'd be people like, I don't know, I'm just going to use Lord of the Rings for an example, I guess. Or even, I don't know, Watchmen or even even comic books um, are a good example of that as well. Like, yeah, you have the artwork and stuff to go off of. But even sometimes in comic books, the stories can go on for several issues. Yeah. Um, and like span for, different universes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's it's always it's a very fine it's a very fine line between adapting a novel to a movie it it's a dangerous line because when people read a book especially the kind of people who really get into books who who really love to read they create a world for themselves they create these characters in their mind and when they sit down to watch your your filmic adaptation if you didn't interpret the character in the same way or you cast a person that they don't think looks right, or you costume them wrong, or you you give them the wrong tone of voice. I mean, you can you can take some really hardcore criticism for adaptations purely because your perception of the work is not the same as someone else's. And I don't think there's many examples of of films adapted from books that everybody really liked there's some yeah but there's not very many well it even even with that taste. like because well even with that because i'm i'm re- uh listening to the audiobook and will uh will wheaton narrates it Ooh, and will the way wheaton. the will wheaton um but the way that he narrates it is um not if I were reading it myself, I would have a completely different approach to how he does it um, compared to how I would do it. And I, you know, you can't even get mad at the guy for, you know, just reading the book the way that he hears it in his own head or whatever. Right. Well, so. exactly. It's like, you know, the, the great thing about art is that it's all, I mean, depending on who you talk to, but if you talk to anybody who has any kind of, agreeance with Roland Barthes and his death of the author or anything like that you'll it, you you have this text and you release it into the world and as a creator as the person who wrote it or as the person who's going to adapt it you want to make it your own but everybody else wants to make it their own and 
and everybody has different experiences and different views on life and different places that they live that are going to skew how they read it and none of them are wrong they're just somebody else's interpretation but the problem becomes i find with film especially is that it's such a business you know like like all art all art is in some form or another a business unless you're not doing it to make a living in which case it's a hobby and that's great but if you want to make a living as an artist it is a business and film especially because i mean what was this 108 million dollars like 108 million dollars was put into making this movie i would be surprised if i ever see that much money in my life you know like it's 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 a sum that i cannot even imagine and yet these companies are putting it out there as investments on on income or are an investment that they're meant and hoping to get a return on um you know so now you've got this product that everybody's looking at and saying hey i want this to be this way it's not you you can't in my mind you can't judge that piece of art on that movie on what you think the book was you have to judge it on its own merit by what it is and unfortunately because people tend to lose their minds over movie adaptations into books or book adaptations into movies um the people who do them treat it like a business and they do it safe all the time because safe means they'll make their money back safe means they won't piss anyone off um i can't speak much to the book on this one because i haven't read it uh so i appreciate hearing what you think about how, what you've gotten so far um as to how it trans progresses um, it's it's a faithful a adaptation like that's the one thing i can say about it is it is a faithful ad adaptation like when i when i listen to what's happening in the martian right now it's almost like the you know certain designs and even even actors and stuff in the movie are those characters and i guess that comes from just seeing the movie first before reading the book because it might be completely mm. different otherwise but um i gotta say like it's a it's a pretty solid adaptation that's uh pretty i wouldn't even say rare it just i don't know it's probably just for me i mean it, it i don't know if it's if it's rare so much as it's just that some of us find certain things so the only I think the only, no, I can't say only, one of the few adaptations of a movie or of a book into a movie that you will be hard-pressed to find a fan of the book dislike is The Lord of the Rings. I, for whatever reason, I mean, besides the fact that it's, they're amazingly made movies and so detailed, um, they found an audience in people who had read the books and not, but they're overwhelmingly positive in how people see them. Um, unless it just isn't, like, if your thing's not fantasy, you're not going to like The Lord of the Rings. But if you're into that kind of thing at all, people generally like those movies. And there aren't very many adaptations of books that are that successful, at least as far as I've seen. They're usually, unless they're really popular 
um, IPs, they're usually not that successful as Lord well, of actually, the Rings was. What I was, um, what I was just thinking was, uh, you know, cause Game of Thrones obviously was a book series before it became a TV show. What about a, what about a Martian TV show? Do you think that would have been more effective than a movie? Um, I will answer that in a sec. I did just want to finish that thought by saying, um, the reason that I bring up the Lord of the Rings like that is because there is love and care and attention put into, into it by someone who loves the story and put the, in the time to do the work to make it good. And that's not always the case. It's not always not the case. And sometimes it doesn't matter if you put in the work or not. Sometimes it's just doomed. Uh, but that's 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 where I think that one was successful. As to a TV show TV show version, I don't know. I could see it. I could see a limited run, like a one season, eight episode sort of thing, um, like a Chernobyl style. Um, you know, I I think that I used to be kind of meh about TV. I was like a big I'm a movie guy. I don't care to write tv i don't care to write series i just want to write movies but as i move forward and as i grow as a writer i i i come to realize how much power there is in connecting with an audience for more than just two hours in one sitting you know to to hit for example sherlock is uh with benedict cumberbatch is a show that i really enjoy um and I watched the first two and a half seasons, and then I fell away from it for unknown reasons. It just I just had other things, and I didn't watch it. And and I recently came back, rewatched season three, and then watched season four, and I was just struck again by how how potent and how powerful storytelling can be when a person has had time to connect to characters. And you can connect in a in a movie. That's more than doable. But the more time you have with a character, the more you feel like they're your friend or they're someone you know or they're a family member, and the more impactful it is when things happen. So I think The Martian is a miniseries. You know, you get one one season with like eight or ten or twelve episodes. Um, I could I could definitely see that working. I I could see it stalling if it went on too long. Oh, hundred percent, yeah. Uh, Couldn't they be only- actually throwing Martians in there to be like? Well, we're through the book part of it. Maybe we'll send Mark Watney back to Mars and he'll find an actual alien. <laughs> you know what, though? I've seen shows do that. I, yeah. I can't even think off the top of my head right now, but I've seen... Oh, what shows am I thinking of? Anyways, I've seen... I remember seeing this show where I watched the first season. It was meant to... You could tell it was like it was done. It was a season. It, they wrapped up the story. Everybody loved it. They gave him more money and the creators were like, well, shit, what do we do now? We got to make another season. And they made another season, and it's like, this is completely not at all what the show ever was. And it has jumped the shark in a million different ways because they needed to find somewhere to go with the story that was finished. Um, so I could totally see that happening. Someone being like, oh, well, maybe they'll find a precursor technology, and it'll actually be the prequel to the prequel to Prometheus. <laughs> and uh... Yeah. <laughs> Well, or they could just end up doing the exact same thing. Like, they'll be like, oh, well, this takes place after the book, and Mark Watney decides to go back to Mars, and he gets stranded there again. It's like <laughs> like watching Home Alone 2 or something. It's like, oh, but this time he's on whatever. This time he's in New York, and it's Christmas. 
<laughs> what will Mark want you do next? <laughs> Starts putting phones and shit together to phone his parents. That sounds I mean, more like E.T., but whatever. I mean, I liked his ending. I think becoming a teacher and inspiring but warning young astronauts is the perfect ending to his story. Mm-hmm. And there's no need to go anywhere else with that. And I don't think it will. It's, yeah. it's an IP that has, it's a one and done. And yep. I appreciate the like non, what would you call that? Non-franchise nature. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't uh, leave it off on a note where it's like, oh, will he go back to Mars? Which or, I feel know, like is entirely a contradiction to what I just said. Um, yeah. Which I, th- I feel like I contradict myself a lot these days because I don't <laughs> I don't really know how I feel about a million Marvel movies for the last ten years or the, the when Star Wars when Disney said they were going to make twenty four years of a Star Wars movie every year. Mm-hmm. You know I'm like on one <laughs> hand I love being able to absorb myself in those worlds and with those characters and and explore all these cool things that you wouldn't get to see if it wasn't so expanded. But also why not tell new stories and explore different things and allow, you know, writers who have a story to tell that is not a part of the super Hulkman trilogy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's yeah, a, I think it's a, a, tr- a, hard I think a trilogy, like, I think a trilogy is okay. Like, I don't know. Like what if even they, uh, split the martian up and <laughs> do, do what the <laughs> hobbit did where they split the martian up into three movies <laughs> the three saga epic of mark Wahlberg or matt damon in space <laughs> i think mark Wahlberg should have a space movie i mean hey i think he'd be great at it mark Wahlberg, wait fighting hang aliens on. hang on okay i gotta make sure i get this right it was matt damon was was born right not mark Wahlberg. he, 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 he yeah, Matt Damon was Jason Bourne. Okay. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Anyways, Mark Wahlberg <laughs> is an action star. Mark Wahlberg could do an alien space movie. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. He already has done one. I oh, mean, tra- Transformers. Transformers doesn't count. I'm sorry, but, like, those movies nah, yeah, were right. <laughs> pretty, like, bare bones to begin with. Yeah. By the time we got to the Mark Wahlberg end of the series, I don't even know how people kept watching them. Yeah, man. I I don't know. This is about the Martian, though. Stay it is. Transformers. <laughs> Let's That's avoid. a whole other episode. <laughs> That's a whole multi-episode. I mean, hell, Lindsay Ellis did like a five-parter on the Transformers movies. Oh, Jesus it's worth That's, watching, actually. It's a really, I really good video series. If you're curious, check yeah. it out, because uh, she's brilliant, but also That's this in one com- in particular. That's commitment right there, man. If you could yeah. do a five-parter on Transformers, that's I'm pretty dedication. Sure it's it either three or five. It's one anything of those two above, magic numbers. Anything above one is, you know, it's pretty yeah. up there. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, I guess closing because we're closing in on like two hours now it's one thing you can tell from mark watney is obviously he spent a number of years on on mars even when he comes back to earth the first thing that you see him doing is he's just 
sitting by himself on a park on a park bench mm. just drinking coffee and then some people pass by and he gives them a nod and then he goes in and does his does his thing like you can tell that he's kind of somebody who is sociable like not antisocial but like just tends to spend a lot of time by himself um yeah. in general and that's one thing i i liked is he wasn't when he got back to earth he wasn't you know you can just see that that was just part of his part of his character and i, I mean you know, i wonder i wonder how much of that was because of his time on mars you know because mm. we see in the beginning he has a lot of he's a very chatty jokey uh talkative sort of person in that first first scene um but i think anybody would would feel after spending somewhere between a year and a half and two years in isolation only talking to yourself and you know text messages essentially coming back to a world like that like i, I got a friend who is an jarring, archaeologist yeah. and he will go and work up north in northern bc or, or whatever with like one other person or two other people for a few weeks at a time and then he comes back and, and he, he gets uncomfortable on crowded trains because you're just not used to to interaction and talking and and being with people again so I, I i i agree i really liked that that sort of de maybe a development in him it felt like a development to me where he grew to be maybe comfortable with himself maybe or, he's or even sad. just a, a little a little wiser um, yeah from from the experience as well well i mean he's got gray hairs now so of course he's wiser went to mars i did survived i did die you will not if listen to me you do <laughs> um so uh i guess one one final question i have to you is uh, would you call would you call Mark Watney a optimist or a realist after everything that's that's happened? Because he's definitely not a pessimist, so it's kind of a a mix of the of the two or one or the other or maybe both. I don't know. Um, so I thought a lot about this while I was watching the movie because I was very curious in relation to how he handles things and 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 how he deals with situations. And I flip-flop between the two, but I lean towards him being a realist. And I say that because um, he, he, never, he never upsells the situation. He never makes it seem like he never tells himself things are going to be fine. He never tries to be excessively hopeful about anything that he's doing. He just says do the math, solve the problem, go to the next problem, live till tomorrow, you know? Um, he has moments of optimism in the sense that he has energy and excitement when things go right and he makes jokes and he keeps a positive attitude. Um, but I don't think that that's optimism. I think that that's a coping mechanism. It's a way of keeping himself sane and happy and working. Um, but, but to me, optimism is 
is looking at a bad situation and inherently drawing out all the good parts of it and insisting on telling yourself that there's so many great things, which is not a bad way to be. But in that situation, I would call him a realist because he looks at the situation. He says, this is how it is. I got to science the shit out of this or I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true because it's not like when he, you know, say if you were counting his potatoes and he didn't have nearly enough to survive, he's like, oh, no, look, I got this. I can live on this. I'll be fine. Then he wouldn't ration properly. And exactly. then he really wouldn't survive. You got to be yeah. realistic and, and understand how much food you have and or how much battery juice you have or how much water you have you know there's a place for optimism and there's a place for realism i i don't think there's really much of a place for pessimism in problem solving and and situations and and trying to function in life i think pe- pessimism is is does nothing but cause problems in people's lives, but so does endless optimism too. So, ration, man. That's all I can say. Ration, ration. The world's the world's a good place. It'll be fine. We just have to hang out, treat each other nicely, stay within outside of six feet or two meters of each other, and uh, don't go anywhere you don't have to. And take care of yourself. And yeah. all will be well. And, uh, yeah, retain your sense of humor. Have a laugh at yourself once in a while. Keep. I do that keep, every day. Uh, yeah, there you go. Me too. Uh, <gasps> keep Idiot. your Keep your hab clean. I know this, this episode probably came off as possibly extremely preachy, but I'm just finding that these are things that helped me out before. So if there's anybody who's listening to this, it could uh, help you out as well. So. I'm going to counterpoint and say, I don't think it comes off as preachy. I think that it's just an honest conversation between two dudes talking about their feelings. And I think that that's a thing that a lot of people might need or want these days. And if you don't, I'm sorry that we dragged you in here under the guise of talking about the Martian to have a conversation about emotions, feelings and stuff. But uh, I I think that uh, in this... In in this world, in the way things are right now, people just need to do whatever's good for them. And, and I just love being able to do something that hopefully provides somebody some sort of measure of comfort. So maybe you listened to this and got some cool ideas or felt happier about the situation or something. I don't know. I can imagine and hope only hope the hope don't float hodge gotta learn to swim against the current not with it that's a different movie finally finished this episode after over a year roughly so a year also... of waiting for it to happen well it's it was uh, solving solving problems like not having a problems. computer that was the first one solve that Ex- one exactly so um i i agree martian's a, a damn good movie it uh gave me lots of feels Still, the third time I've watched it today, lots of feels by the end. It's a great movie. Worth a watch. As always, there are spoilers in this episode. So, if you don't want the movie spoiled for you, as much as we might have spoiled it in this one, which is not nearly so much. And some of the book. (laughs) And some of the book. 
then go watch it or and or read it before you come and check out this episode. Um, you have been warned posthumously, as always. Thank you guys so much for listening. We are hoping the best for all of you right now. And uh, we will talk to you guys two weeks from now. All right. Have a good one, people. See you next time. Bye. Bye.